This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. We have an opportunity to talk about some pretty amazing stuff that happens to be going on, has been for a while. But the things that are being done, they're making about as big a difference as you can dream up. And it's it's one of those things where you think, well, how does this happen? And somebody shows you a 3D printer. That's how. Huh? 3D printer. That's that's all it takes? 3D printers can do some amazing, amazing things. We are talking about the Glia Project. And we are lucky to have with us from the Glia Project, Dorotea Guchardo. Dorotea, thanks so much for being here. Hi, Mike. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. This this is a real pleasure on our side, too, because what you have been doing, and a lot of this has been happening since the start of the pandemic, is making massive differences, not just in one country or two countries, but all over the place. Let's first off, let's outline the GLIA project and what this is all about. Sure thing. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, the GLIA project um, refers to our um, initiative to produce high-quality medical hardware using 3D printing. And in fact, our first ever device was a 3D printed stethoscope. And the reason why it's important that we use 3D printing is because we want to make our devices as accessible as possible around the world, especially in low resource areas. And 3D printing is an important part of that. But so is keeping all of our information open. And so in addition to the 3D printing, we promote open access research. We share every stage of our process from initial research to clinical results to how to reproduce our designs. And one of the projects we're working on now is called the Open Gaza Initiative. Um, You know, Gaza is a low resource area that faces a lot of challenges in terms of access to medical devices. So we're working really hard on a campaign to remedy that. Okay. Well, we can get into that in just a moment. You probably raised a lot of eyebrows by saying something (laughs) as simple as, well, the first thing we created from the 3D printer to make use of was a stethoscope. Now, you know what? We can think back to when you got a little doctor's kit when you were three years old and you could carry it around. It had a a little thing to test reflexes and it had a thermometer in it and it had a little stethoscope. And some of them from Fisher Price actually worked, but I wouldn't be trusting it to use it anywhere. These stethoscopes work like stethoscopes and they come out of the 3D printer? They don't just work like stethoscopes, they are stethoscopes, and they are (laughs) clinically validated to operate just as effectively, if not better, than the Litmans that are currently on the market. That's incredible. Okay, so Mm -hmm. where right now is the GLIA project helping primarily? So the GLIA project's helping in a variety of different areas. We are working, obviously, locally because we're a London-based company. Um, but we're also working uh, worldwide, as you say, and our two major focuses right now are London, Ontario, and Gaza City. So London, Ontario, and Gaza City. And why Gaza City? Well, Gaza is, um, is a, 
it's, it's a challenging place. Um, we have one of our, our medical directors who works firsthand in Gaza. He's a emergency room physician here in London, but he also works as a physician at a hospital there. And so he really has his ear to the ground in terms of what the needs are of the community. Um, and we fostered relationships with the Ministry of Health there. And so we have a really good sense of what's needed. And because it's a place where it poses a challenge to bring items in, we found that through 3D printing, we can help offer solutions that are locally made and sustainable. We're talking right now with Dorotea Guchardo from the Glia Project, and we're looking at what the Glia Project does and the difference it has been making largely during the pandemic. When you look at the, the challenges of, of bringing things in, we might be saying, well, just order them, just just order them, just deliver them. Where does the 3D printer come in in making things better than just sending out an order? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And I mean, the heart of it is that you can't just order. You can't just import goods, especially into a place like Gaza, which... Um, is facing an ongoing Israeli-led blockade, and the blockade prevents medical equipment from entering the region. They can't buy new devices, and they can't replace broken equipment. Um, and so our Open Gaza initiative is uh, designed to train teams of biomedical engineers there who can inventory the equipment and use 3D printing to replace spare parts to bring that equipment back into working order. This is just remarkable that this can be done in this way. It sounds, I don't want to say simple, but is it at least on the road of of simple? Is it at least in the neighborhood where simple lives? You know, it involves a considerable amount of skill and knowledge to be able to open up a device and figure out what's wrong with it and come up with a solution. So a major part of the project is to train biomedical engineers to do that. Um, but the thing is, while that process is difficult, it isn't difficult to share the information. It isn't difficult to make that information accessible, especially to low resource areas where they can adopt it and modify it to their own needs. And so that's why it's really important to us to keep the information as widely accessible and as open as possible to make it a simple solution for a complicated problem. We're talking with Dorote Guchardo about the GLIA project. How do you go about making that information known? That's also a really excellent question. Um, you can't have a project like this um, in isolation. So we've partnered with some really great organizations who are going to help bring this to fruition. Um, one organization is called Field Ready. It's a UK-based charity that has a successful track record of training people on the ground and using available technologies to solve problems. And we've also uh, partnered with the Restart Project, also located in the UK, and they specialize in organizing information and collecting it specific to um, repairing equipment. Um, this type of project requires a lot of working knowledge, and they're one of the leaders in the right to repair movement, which advocates for people's right to repair the technologies that they own. And finally, we've partnered with an organization called iFixit, which are the holders of the world's largest repository of information about medical device repair. 
And so they'll be helping with parts design. And in fact, uh, Mike, if you've ever Googled how to fix one of your devices, chances are really good that you've come across a manual provided by iFixit. <laughs> That's amazing. And when it comes to fixing things, is that kind of where the printers come in as well, where you say, hey, we don't need to produce an entire one of these, but we need this thing that we can't seem to find or get? Exactly. So the 3D printers can be used to replace gears, for example, on machinery that might be um, difficult or expensive to replace. It might be worn down. Um, The first example that comes to mind is uh, a gear for an x-ray developer machine, for example. These tend to wear out really quickly. And so by replicating the design using a 3D printer, we can bring those devices back into working order. Dorothea Guchardo joining us from the GLIA project. Where is everything produced? Is it produced in Gaza City? That's right. Our our objective always is to make uh, local communities as sustainable and self-reliant as possible. And GLIA has an office in Gaza. So GLIA Gaza will be um, 3D printing the devices. And they are primed to do so because they're already printing uh, so many other medical devices as well. Dorte, you've talked about a stethoscope. You've talked about parts. Is it true that something as complex as dialysis can be aided by this project? Yeah, that's really exciting, isn't it? And it's one of the projects that um, is one of our long-term goals is to have an open access, open source dialysis machine. Um, So that will hopefully be part of the long-term project even of the Open Gaza initiative. That is remarkable. Nothing comes for free. How do you go about finding funding for this? No, nothing does come for free. Um, We are largely crowdfunded, actually. So a lot of our funding comes from donations from people who see the value in the work that we're doing um, and who want to make a difference in people's lives. And this is definitely a way to make a difference. Um, And so for this particular campaign, if there are anybody who is interested in donating, they can find all information at www.opengaza.org. It's obviously a big project already just between London and Gaza, but any discussions going on right now that maybe something like this can be expanded to other countries who might be facing similar challenges? Absolutely. Um, So we've been talking um, very loosely about how this project could be replicated elsewhere. So we're looking at areas in South Africa, for example, um, possibly even India, where we can take the knowledge that we're gaining and help benefit people uh, from all over the world in low-resource areas. Dorothea, thank you so much for describing how things are going with the GLIA project. Please keep up the great work, and I hope we get to talk again soon. Mike, thank you so much for having me, and I hope that you can come join us in our 3D printing lab one day. I would love to. Let's get this pandemic <laughs> really over and done with. Oh, we'll, we'll bring cameras. I promise. I would love it. Okay, it's a date. Let's do it. <laughs> Take care. Thank you. You too. That's Dorothea Guchardo from the GLIA Project. And, yeah, when we get an opportunity to be invited into places, let's go and do that. Because I don't know if you've seen a 3D printer work. Sometimes... You may see them at libraries, and they'll do a little thing like they'll make a a game piece for a board game that may have gone missing or all kinds of little things that you can put together. When you're talking about creating a working stethoscope, when you're able to say, hey, this part is broken in this machine, this gear, can we make a new one? And you can. It changes the world in a hurry. 
We need to get to attack ads. I don't know about you. I find them annoying. It, it really it speaks to the game of politics far too much. Politics is a game. So many people go into politics with all kinds of great aspirations. They're going to do this, they're going to do that, and then they get in and they realize the game that you have to play. And the game is unforgiving, the game is not fun, and the game sometimes keeps you from being able to do exactly what you want to do. When you can actually influence a voting public making use of an attack ad... That's the time when we need to look ourselves in the mirror and say, what are we doing? What are, what are we doing? And we're not the only country that has this. In fact, we're probably mild when it comes to attack ads, when you look at some of the ways that other countries handle elections and other parties go at one another. Other candidates go at one another. But there's something very interesting that has come out from Jay Goldberg, Interim Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, that we want to focus in on now that deals with attack ads. Jay, welcome back to London Live. How are things? Great to be with you. We couldn't speak the last time because your wife all of a sudden went into labor. Uh, Everything okay? Everything's great, yeah. She was about two weeks early, and their daughter is here and doing well. Hey, congratulations. And how much sleep are you getting? Oh, not too much. <laughs> I recommend, though, I don't know how new a dad you are. Is this uh, is this baby number one? Yeah. Hey, that's even better. Okay, I'll, I try not to give too much of advice to parents because parents never like getting advice. But here's the only thing that, that I will offer up. If there is a way for you to do any late-night feeds ever, take that. The four o'clock in the morning feed when they're really small, there is nothing like it. And there are usually great episodes of Simon and Simon playing somewhere. And it takes you back. So I know you might be too young for Simon and Simon, but there are great episodes of something. And the four o'clock morning feed, those are times I will never forget with the kids. That's the only parenting advice I will ever try and give. Let's talk about attack ads instead of parenting advice. We have elections that are coming up. We know that attack ads are a thing. But Jay, you've been doing some work into exactly who winds up paying for attack ads provincially. And it's it's probably work that we're not going to like the outcome of. What have you put together for us? Yeah, so essentially what happens is in Ontario, we have a system of what's called per-vote subsidies, where the government, using taxpayer dollars, gives money to the four main political parties here in Ontario, uh, which they can use for any purpose that they want, including attack ads. Uh, and so uh, by the time we have the next election, next June, uh, Ontario taxpayers will have given $60 million to Ontario's four major political parties, which they can then turn around and use on things like the attack ads that make us want to throw our televisions out the window, uh, you know, lawn signs. Um, but one of the new discoveries uh, that we had just recently uh, is that the Conservative government passed a bill, uh, the one that actually had to use the notwithstanding clause, there's a small clause in there that says uh, the three payments that were supposed to come for after the election uh, for the political parties, they're actually going to come before the election. It's an advance payment, and it's $10 million, which, of course, these parties can then turn around and use on attack ads. 
Man, see, and we know that, yes, there are ways to make use of taxpayer dollars for all kinds of things. I never thought, and call me naive because I am, I never thought that there would be a way to make use of taxpayer dollars, not just for the party in power, but you're talking about all parties, to just turn the money around and use it for whatever, including something like attack ads. Has this been going on a long time? So the per vote subsidy was introduced uh, by former Premier Kathleen Wynne. Uh, the system's been in place for about uh, six years now. Uh, Premier Ford, when he was running for office in the last election, he actually promised to scrap the program. Um, but instead of scrapping it, he's left it there. He's allowed it to grow. And now, of course, we're seeing these advanced payments where Ontario's political parties are getting $10 million worth of taxpayer money right before the election that they can spend on things like attack ads that normally they wouldn't be getting until well after the election. So this is sort of almost a new a new low that we're seeing here. And, of course, none of the opposition parties are complaining about it because they're also going to be getting millions of dollars. Yeah, when you want to make sure that nobody's going to call you on something like this, make sure that... They're getting it, too. Thanks, Kathleen Wynne and the Liberals. Thanks, Doug Ford and the Conservatives for creating and then maintaining this little gem. Jay Goldberg joining us, Interim Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. So when you're talking about $10 million that will come before the next provincial election, do they just divvy that up equally? So it's based on how many votes they received in the previous election. So out of the $10 million or so, uh, the PC party is going to get $4.5 million. The NDP will get $3.5 million. The Liberals, $2 million. And the Green Party, half a million. And that's just advance payments. Uh, that that uh, doesn't include the payments over the last four years. And actually, if you look at the payments, if you're going to look at Doug Ford's entire term in office, uh, within that four-year period, once we hit the next election, the PC party, they'll have gotten $26 million of taxpayer money, the New Democrats, $22 million, the Liberals, 13 and the Green Party, 3 So that's $60 million, our tax dollars, going into the pockets of political parties to spend on whatever the heck they want. If I wasn't connected to a lot of electronic stuff right now, I think I'd like to go and take a shower, Jay. That's how this story makes me feel. Is there a chance, and I always like to give people the benefit of the doubt, probably to a fault, is there a chance that these parties could accept this particular money and say, you know what, we're not going to use it for things like attack ads. We're going to do some good with it. Here's what we want to do with it. Or is that not something that we've seen take place? Well, we haven't seen that yet because, uh, you know, one of the problems with these provoked subsidies is that there's no restriction on what the parties can use the money for. The parties get the money. And, you know, of course, political parties might come out and say, well, we, we spend money on uh, lawn signs, we spend money on leaflets, we spend money on uh, attack ads, and okay, so maybe the money we're getting... Uh, from the government and from taxpayers through the government, uh, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll only use that for the uh, the flyers and the leaflets and the lawn signs, but not the attack ads. Unfortunately, you know, all this money goes into one big fund for all of these different parties. And so even if they suggest that they're going to focus the money, you know, in other areas, which they're not even suggesting, uh, the fact that they're getting all this money from taxpayers still opens it up to allow them to spend millions of dollars on attack ads. 
Jay, you're raising your voice on this. I'm sure that voices will continue to carry this story forward as well. What do you think? What would it take to change this? Does it take actual legislation and the parties all saying, yeah, 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 okay, yeah, yeah, we get it. Yeah, probably shouldn't have been put in the in in place in the first place. Probably shouldn't be happening now. Do you do you foresee anything like that, or is that a is that a dream world? Is that hey, we'll just wait for the noise to die down, and then we'll just go back to accepting this money and doing what we want with it? Well, what I would say is I think that Premier Ford's going to have a bit of a tough time in the next election. I mean, he really ran on in twenty eighteen uh, this platform of fighting for the taxpayer, making sure that government is not taking advantage of hardworking Ontarians. And unfortunately, through these advance payments and through still keeping these subsidies in place, uh, you know, they've drifted away from that. Uh, the Ford government has claimed that they're keeping these payments in place because of COVID, that somehow uh, that's led political parties not to have enough money, which is not true because the PC party raised four and a half million dollars last year. Uh, so they're blaming it on COVID. Um, but, you know, I think we really have to take the message to Doug Ford and say, look, you, you, you made a promise that we all like, that we we're going to stop handing over taxpayer dollars to political parties. Uh, it's time to keep that promise if you want to campaign again on a taxpayer-friendly agenda. Oh, the game of politics, right, Jay? It's, uh, it's a lot like parenting, you'll find out. You never know what each day is going to throw at you. Exactly. Jay, thanks for the time today. Thank you. That's Jay Goldberg, new dad and an interim Ontario director with the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. That is what it, and this will be a difficult thing. It always is because every single politician who runs after winning will have their checklist, their track record. And it is out there to see. Remember, they made this promise. Did they keep the promise? Remember, they made this promise. Did they keep that promise? And that's been going on for a long time. When you do run on a platform that says, make sure that taxpayers and the honest working individual in this province is going to be taken care of and not going to be taken advantage of, that's that's going to come back to having to answer to it and that's coming up in the next election provincially of course there'll be a lot of other questions asked to the other party leaders but seriously this this is one of those things that didn't need to be there this is one of those things that does need to be fixed but it is one of those things and you know this will happen it makes a little bit of noise right now and people will say that's terrible that's awful Political parties just getting taxpayer dollars, being able to do what they want with them, and being able to get $10 million and share in that based on how many votes you received in the last election, even before the election, so that you can pay off your lawn signs and you can pay off attack ads if you so choose. You know that noise will go on, and it's not even that loud right now. Jay's trying his best to make it loud. It's not that loud, and it will just die down, and then they'll continue to do this. You get into the game of politics, and then you realize, huh, you know, I've got some great ideas, but the game's not allowing me to carry those great ideas out. So, hmm, let's just keep playing the game. 
So, what is going on in Talbotville? This is a story that we've been following for a while because the Ford site, home of a long, long running assembly plant for Ford, has been sold. We knew about that earlier this month. But what's what's going in there? When you drive by now, you see fencing up. You see vehicles doing something. What, what are they doing? And a lot of the rumor mill points to this being an Amazon operation. So we don't know anything for sure because it hasn't been announced for sure. There is speculation And you can find this at globalnews.ca. You can read through a number of articles, one written by Andrew Graham and others that were included afterward. There is speculation. Amazon plans to set up shop and that there could be some kind of Amazon warehouse or plant or whatever it happens to be being put on that site. We, again, don't have anything for sure. Amazon won't confirm the rumor, the rumor, but Amazon won't deny the rumor. And all they would say to Global News a few weeks ago is, we don't comment on our future roadmap. And right now you have the St. Thomas and District Chamber of Commerce being inundated with calls asking about the same thing. People are wondering. Residents are excited about the idea. You would think about potential jobs and growth and all kinds of positives, but we don't know for sure. What we can do is take a look at what is happening now and what the impact might be if, in fact, that's what winds up taking place. And that's something that we are going to get into in just a couple of minutes. Reminder that the All-Star Game is going to be broadcast on 980 CFPL tonight for Major League Baseball. And that's something that will feature four members of the Blue Jays. And then the questions will begin, will the Blue Jays add to their bullpen? Will they add to their rotation? Because all four players are offensive players. All four players in the All-Star game, are offensive players. Teoscar Hernandez and Marcus Simeon and Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and Bo Bichette. So if there was pitching to match what the Blue Jays were doing, where could they be? That's a question that we'll have answered in the coming weeks. Much like the question of, is Amazon coming to the area? Let's talk a little bit more about this. Bruce Winder is the author of Retail, Before, During, and After COVID-19, and he is the president of Bruce Winder Retail. Bruce, how are things? Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me on the show. Great to have you here. Have you heard anything today? I mean, this could come at any second in terms of what is actually taking place, but we've got a lot of Amazon rumors. What do you make of them? Well, I don't. I haven't heard anything else. Uh, first of all, in terms of any updates, I've been following what's what's been written in the London Free Press in terms of some of the stuff they've written. I mean, definitely, I think it would be great for for London if this does happen. Um, you know, I know that they already have a couple of smaller locations, delivery centers that they're looking to open up. But uh, it'd be great if they had something larger for sure. So I guess that that's a great point if you're not hearing anything else, because how tough are these secrets to keep when big companies do get involved? 
Yeah, usually it's uh, usually it's tough to keep a secret, right? But uh, you know, sometimes uh, sometimes they can. You know, I don't know what's going on. I've read all the articles in the London Free Press, but you know, definitely um, it would be nice because you know, from what I've read, the Ford plant was there, closed down in 2011. 1,100 people lost their jobs. I think it would be great for London and the whole area, St. Thomas and other areas, if someone new came in and set up shop and created a bunch of jobs and. You know, as we know, when you create, when you open up one place, you know, you get sort of a uh, a ripple effect where you get restaurants and other places that do well, retail does well. So it'd be nice sort of halo effect for the community if, in yeah. fact, this thing does come to fruition. If we could bring in a number of jobs, like you said, the area had to deal with the loss of so many jobs when the Ford plant closed, and now the idea that you could bring in something that would create a whole lot of jobs definitely Definitely something to to keep our fingers on and the ripple effects that come with it. Bruce, in putting together the book that you did, in looking at retail during, before, after the pandemic, do you think this is something that we're going to be zeroing in on for years and years to come to kind of take a picture of what happened and then kind of look at at both sides and, and see where we sit? How do you see this playing out? Yeah, I think definitely it was a major sort of, uh, you know, inflection point of retail. And there's a lot of folks like myself who have penned some books out there to give it their, you know, give it their shake in terms of what happened and what's going to happen in the future. I do think this is going to be a um, a significant point, though, where things have changed. You know, some people would say it accelerated. Um, that's probably true to some degree. You know, some of the trends in retail have accelerated, but there's been new trends as well that have popped up as well, you know. But definitely, I think the common denominator that all of us would talk about is that e-commerce has grown and it's con- it continues to grow. And the pandemic sort of proved how important e-commerce was for us and how it kind of kept us all in play, you know, kept food coming in, kept products coming in. And, you know, the other thing that it does, too, is it's become a major employer now, too, right? I mean, look at over the last 10 years, Amazon, you know, had a warehouse in Canada for 10 years now. They just recently celebrated their 10-year anniversary, I think, in Mississauga. They opened the first facility. But these are where the new jobs are going to come from. Whoever, you know, these e-commerce companies with their warehouses, that's where job growth is going to come. That and drivers and things. You're going to see less job growth from traditional companies with brick-and-mortar stores. And it's just the new reality. Bruce Weider joining us, author of Retail Before, During, and After COVID-19. As we talk a little bit about the Amazon rumors, but certainly look at retail and the new landscape. And there are people who will say, we got to be careful. We can't have a company like Amazon controlling so much of the marketplace in the e-commerce world. What do you make of the marketplace and, and how the big players are doing? Yeah, it's actually a lot more fragmented than people think. Like people think, okay, Amazon owns the the e-commerce market. There's actually a lot of different players out there. I mean, you look at the the players in Canada, the big retailers like Walmart, Canadian Tire, you know, Loblaws. They're all Home Depot. They're all major players in this space, and they've all dialed up their resources over the last few years. Uh, specifically, Canadian Tire. I think they did two billion in online sales uh, during the pandemic over the last year. That's incredible. Uh, because, you know, if you go back five years ago, they weren't even selling anything to be you know online or limited stuff. It all had to be picked up at store. Now they have a delivery program. So it's just the new normal for everyone. You're seeing all kinds of retailers invest in this. And certainly it's not just Amazon at the plate. You're seeing a whole bunch of uh, anyone who's anyone in retail uh, is, is getting into this new way of doing business. 
as retailers, Bruce, how does a company ready itself for something like that? Because you'd love to say, hey, we can just use our existing employees and we'll just be able to do deliveries and it'll all work magically and seamlessly. What's that transition been like? Well, I think it's it's starting and it's it's been happening sort of slowly. Um, you know, we're now and then you see some stores close, some folks, and then you hear about, you know, the odd warehouse opening up. I think you're going to see it that sort of happen a little quicker now going forward. I think, you know, you're probably going to see a few stores close later on as, as consumers have right-sized the e-commerce and retailers are just going to what they call right-sizing their store count. And they're going to put more of those resources, whether it's people or capital, into warehouses, delivery infrastructure, you know, that kind of thing. So I think it's going to be sort of a, a transition that'll probably uh, accelerate a bit. But, you know, definitely there's going to be just a difference in terms of how we do business. This isn't the first time we've changed in retail. If you go back to the 60s, you know, folks like Walmart came out and Kmart, if you remember Kmart, you know, and uh, and Target. And they revolutionized retail because before that it was mostly department stores, right? And even department stores revolutionized retail 100 years ago. So, you know, it's just kind of natural that the industry changes. And, um, you know, I think it could be a, a really good thing for London if, the, if in fact, this does happen. We're talking with Bruce Wander, author of Retail Before, During, and After COVID-19, and the president of Bruce Wander Retail. Bruce, we have heard so many heart-wrenching stories from small and medium-sized businesses, businesses that are just trying to stay afloat until the end of this. And now the landscape, like you say, has changed a little bit. What do you think is so important for small and medium-sized businesses as we hopefully continue to come out of this pandemic and maybe get back to them being able to welcome people in into their stores in a, a greater number, but certainly trying to take advantage of what is a, a changing marketplace? I think the number one thing for small businesses is to integrate their e-commerce with their brick-and-mortar locations. And if you're not online already, if you're a small business, get online. And if you're, if you're online, look at marketplaces to see if they can help you out. Places like Amazon. Amazon has 30,000 small vendors who sell across Canada on their site. So I would look to partner maybe with a Shopify to build your site if you haven't built it yet. And then once you partner with, once you build it, get on someone like Amazon to get that exposure, get those millions of customers looking at your thing, at your products. But then make sure that whatever you're doing online is integrated really well with your brick and mortar location. So it's like a seamless way of shopping. In other words, you can satisfy a consumer, whether he or she wants to buy online, have it, you know, delivered to their house or go into the store or, you know, whatever mix of that combination. Make sure if you're a small retailer, you're there in spades and you're ready to do business. And how difficult can that be? Because for someone who's never been online, that, that can seem daunting. Is it easier once you get the ball rolling? It is. It's actually, it sounds super intimidating on the surface. Um, but when you get in there, you know, if you phone someone at Shopify or looked online, they'd be able to help you set up a site. And then once you get a site, it's super easy to jump on a place like Amazon to register yourself as a vendor. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's one of those things you take a deep breath give it a shot. And, you know, these tech companies are smart. They make it easy now for people to get online and to use their services. Yeah, that's that's just it. It is it is a whole lot. It's not like you have to design your own website anymore, is it? No, it used to be that we had to hire a tech person, hire a programmer. Now, you know, within a couple of days, you can have your own site. And within maybe a few days after that, you're on a marketplace reaching literally millions of people looking at your products. 
When we look, Bruce, at coming out of this, how many retailers do you think have just said, I can't do this, I can't, I can't make it any further, I've, I've given everything, I've, I've exhausted all money that I can exhaust, I, I can't do this anymore? Yeah, I think it's, so, we're going to see some of that, unfortunately, and it's super sad, but I mean, I think as you're starting to see some of the government subsidies wind down now, and as government subsidies wind down, um, you know, there's going to be a time now where some businesses may not have adapted uh, to the new normal, i.e. they haven't opened up a website, they haven't done some of those things, and their sales profile might be a lot lower than it was before the pandemic. So some of those folks are going to struggle. They may have some debt, and they may say, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call it quits. That's going to happen. I don't know how much of that will happen, but it's something that most pundits are expecting sort of you know, in the fall as uh, a lot of the government subsidies wind down. Well, we'll wait to see what happens. We hope it doesn't happen in a great number, but exactly, yeah. you never know. Bruce, it's been great talking about this. We'll see what happens with Amazon and the Talbotville site if they do wind up being a match and what that creates and certainly what continues to happen in retail coming out of this pandemic, fingers crossed. Have yourself a great rest of the day. Thanks for the insight. Yeah, you too. Thanks for having me on. Take care. That's Bruce Winder author of Retail Before, During, and After COVID-19, and the president of Bruce Winder Retail. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.